Welcome to another episode of the Merck Manuals Medical Myths Podcast. On this show, we set the record straight on today's most talked about medical topics and questions. I'm your host, Joe McIntyre, and on this episode, we welcome Dr. Rania Swace, MD, MS, and Associate Professor of Cardiology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She brings more than a decade of experience in clinical care, research, and education. Today, we will explore the differences between heart attacks and cardiac arrest, the causes, symptoms, and treatments for each, and how to reduce the risk of those conditions. We will also address common myths surrounding heart health and provide practical advice for maintaining a healthy heart. Dr. Swayce, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start off with a big one. Uh, can you tell us what a heart attack is and what exactly causes it? Sure. So a heart attack, or if we use medical terminology, we call it a myocardial infarction, is when something causes damage to the heart cell muscles and they start dying, muscle cells, and they start dying. Uh, this is most commonly caused by a blockage in the artery and probably clot that forms at that site in arteries that supply the heart. And so if that area that's supplied by that artery is no longer getting fresh blood with oxygen and nutrition, then those cells start to die. And that is in essence what a heart attack is. What are typically some of the most common risk factors for heart attacks? So the most common risk factors uh, for heart attack are a number of them. I like to think about it as a pie chart actually. And different parts of the pie chart are the things that I'm gonna uh, name off now. So we think specifically of some cardiac conditions that can contribute risk for heart attack. So high cholesterol, the, the high cholesterol in blood can contribute to building or the uh, blockages getting worse in these arteries that can contribute to heart attack. Um, high blood pressure, diabetes is a big risk factor because it impacts the blood vessels and how they heal and also causes these blockages to build up from cholesterol that's in the bloodstream. Um, patients that are smokers uh, really set themselves up uh, for a risk uh, for a heart attack. The other risk factors that I mentioned are sort of lifelong and build over time, but smoking, even one cigarette can cause inflammation in the blood vessels that can contribute to a heart attack that time. Other risk factors uh, definitely include obesity, a lifestyle that's sedentary without exercise. One other uh, section of the pie chart is genetics. You may not even know what your genetics are because you are a unique combination of your two parents. So you're not exactly the same as either parent. Uh, I have plenty of patients who, despite having parents with terrible coronary disease, they don't have uh, heart attacks or um, heart disease. And the opposite, I have parents who are healthy and children who have bad coronary disease. And then the last section of the pie chart has got a question mark on it because as much as we know, and we know a lot about heart disease, there are still factors that we don't completely understand. Now, I think we hear about a lot of people who are of older age who have uh, had a heart attack. Is it possible for someone who's 40, 30, even in their 20s to have a heart attack? Yes, it is. And I think part of um, how life is in you know, the, the current century contributes to that. Uh, obesity, the high risk of diabetes, um, probably stress is uh, one of the elements as well. So we are seeing patients that are younger have these problems as well. But because they do take a long time to develop, it still is more common in older patients. What are some of the common symptoms of a heart attack? How do you know that what you're experiencing is a heart attack versus something that may be a little bit more benign? Well, if you have any concern, it's always better to get evaluated and have a professional tell you you're fine rather than 
think that you're fine and come in and find that something's late. So I'll start with that first. <laughs> um, that's why we're trained. Give us that, you know, let us uh, give you the reassurance rather than uh, try to reassure yourself. And sometimes it might be too late. Um, so the most common symptoms that you'll read in a textbook is chest pain or discomfort. Um, it's described by people sometimes as an elephant sitting on the chest. Um, that can often be associated with a feeling of shortness of breath. So you can't get a full breath in because it feels like your chest is tight. Um, in many patients, some of this discomfort also radiates to their left arm. So they might have numbness, pain, or tingling in that arm as well. Those are the most common symptoms. And we try especially to raise awareness for the fact that women's symptoms are a lot more uncommon than these textbook descriptions of chest pain and elephant sitting on the chest, et cetera. So in women, it can be just a symptom in the jaw, uh, jaw numbness or discomfort, or just in the arm, not, you know, the same kind of crushing chest pain. What I would, you know, recommend to people is if you've got the, some of the risk factors, or you know for sure that you have got a family history, if you have any of these symptoms, especially if they don't go away, please seek medical attention. And it really should be by calling 911. If the pain is gone, it might be fine to call your doctor or get an appointment. But if you have pain that won't go away, you know, say 10, 15 minutes, and maybe it's accelerating or it's just constant, I would call 911 um, to be taken to a hospital. Is there a time frame that someone has um, between the, you know, the origin of those symptoms and when it could be, you know, super, super serious? Um, or does it kind of vary per person? It varies. If you come really quickly, you can probably really minimize the damage. So. I'm assuming that an artery is closed. You've got a clot completely blocking that artery and there's no flow. In the medical community, we talk about door to balloon time. So from when the patient hits the ER door to when we open the blockage with our balloons. And we want that to be as low as possible. Um, I think the, the official guideline is 90 minutes, but we really try to get it 60 minutes or less. So that means if it happens in the middle of the night, the page is going out to everybody on the team and everybody's rushing in because we want to decrease the amount of time that that area of heart muscle doesn't have blood supply to decrease the amount of damage that happens overall. Of course, that is going to be impacted by did the patient sit at home for 12 hours before they came in or did they have symptoms for 15 minutes? They, you know, they had significant concern, called an ambulance and came to the hospital right away. So um, the amount of damage is going to be different depending on uh, how long the patient has been having the, the chest pain. Now, switching gears just a little bit, what is cardiac arrest and how is that different from uh, a heart attack? So cardiac arrest is a, stat, a situation where the heart stops. So the heart is a pump. It, the muscle squeezes to pump blood out to the body. A cardiac arrest is when the heart is not doing that. So it can be because a heart attack is so bad that the muscle just can't squeeze because the whole muscle is impacted. It can be because of an electrical problem. The way the heart muscle cells are coordinated to squeeze at the same time is through electricity that's passed from one cell to the next. If that electricity becomes disorganized and they have fast heart rhythms, that's kind of the situation if you think about TV shows where they, you know, where patients have to get shocked. Those heart rhythms can cause the heart to not beat regularly. Therefore, there's no blood going to the body, and that's cardiac arrest as well. So to answer your question about how they're related, a heart attack can lead to a cardiac arrest. 
but not all cardiac arrests are related to heart attack. Got it. Got it. What are some of the common causes of cardiac arrest then? How does how do they uh, how do they originate? Well, like I mentioned, heart attack may be one of them, mm-hmm. um, but probably the more common ones out in the field are arrhythmic. So they the arrhythmia may be due to a heart attack. The heart attack may not be a big heart attack. But when air cells are dying, they become electrically sort of disrupted and they can cause a, an arrhythmia to happen. So that is um, why I actually said if you're having a, if you think you're having a heart attack to call 911, because if you have an arrhythmia like this and you're in the ambulance, they'll be able to shock you out of it and completely save your life. But if you're in driving your car or in a cab back of a cab when you have that arrhythmia, you're going to stay in that arrhythmia until you get to help. And, and depending on how long that is, that may also mean uh, brain damage from not oxygen to your brain. Are there any warning signs of cardiac arrest or because it's so, um, I guess, so severe and so quick, it, it can, they can be tough to recognize? What is the reality there? It can be tough to recognize. Um, some patients who may have scar in their heart muscle from either a, a heart condition that they have or a prior heart attack may notice that they have uh, palpitations. Um, you know, so if somebody notices that they get palpitations and get lightheaded or dizzy, that's a, something to seek attention um, from your primary care physician who might have you wear a monitor to try to see what these are. There are some situations where people might have sort of some warning signs because they've got, you know, short runs of these arrhythmias before they finally become potentially fatal. Um, but in many situations, it's hard to predict, particularly when you're talking about, you know, young young athletes. Athletes are screened with an EKG to look for obvious conditions. There are some genetic conditions that can give you abnormal heart rhythms, um, but they may not always be present on a screening EKG. There's not really a way to screen for them or prevent them in some of, in some of the patients, you know, that we see in the news that have a cardiac arrest that come out of nowhere. Now, you mentioned uh, defibrillators a little bit. Uh, I think TV and movies maybe skew what they can actually do or what they're actually capable of. So a uh, question for you, if someone's heart has stopped and they've been considered that they're dead or they passed away, can a defibrillator bring someone back? Yes or no. And then two, how do defibrillators actually uh, work and when would they be used? The defibrillator can for sure bring somebody back if it just happened. Mm-hmm. And just happened, there's a, kind of a little bit of a range of that. I mean, if some if somebody's in, a, in the throes of a cardiac arrest and we're trying to do CPR on them, we're certainly going to try to shock them. The best thing sort of about ICDs is that they're available everywhere and that they're almost dummy proofed because when you put the leads on the chest, it tells you if it's a rhythm that should be shocked or not. Mm. Some patients may arrest because they don't have electrical beats and a shock for that isn't going to help anything. But if the patients have a disorganized fast heart rhythm that is causing their heart not to pump effectively, then a shock could potentially, um, it's a, it's a, it delivers a, a larger amount of electricity to almost sort of reset the electrical system and kind of shock it out of the abnormal heart rhythm. So that's how they work. Um, and they can detect, you know, the, the, you know, the defibrillators that we have in all common places, schools, airports, all that, they can detect if it's an abnormal heart rhythm and recommend a shock. So, so in follow-up to that, we want to get those on the chest as soon as possible. So if you witness somebody arrest, you don't want to leave that patient you want to make sure that help is on the way. And if there's somebody around you, you want to send them to go get the defibrillator, the IED. Should someone have an IED or defibrillator in their house if they have an older person they live with or someone who may be um, at risk for um, for a heart attack? I'm not sure 
the cost benefit analysis of that makes sense to put, you know, defibrillators in homes because, you know, the vast majority of people don't have a cardiac arrest even when they do have a heart attack. Right. Um, but if patients do have a condition that is a high risk for a heart attack, they will get an implanted defibrillator. More pe- people are more uh, familiar with pacemakers. It kind of looks like a pacemaker, but it's a little bit bigger. And instead of just, you know, organizing the beats, it can shock a patient out of an arrhythmia. So if somebody is at risk for that, they will have a defibrillator. So in effect, they have a defibrillator at home. Got it. You mentioned uh, door to balloon. Is that the phrase you used? That is uh, the phrase I used, yeah. Can you talk about, I guess, some of the treatments for heart attacks and what exactly that uh, how that balloon works uh, a little bit? Sure. So in 2023, the standard of care for somebody that has a heart attack because of an acute blockage in the artery from a clot is basically to get that clot open. Um, So a few decades ago, it would be to try to do emergency surgery to bypass that blockage. But now that we have these techniques with catheters and wires, uh, we're able to take care of the patient much faster and um, save as much heart muscle as we can. So uh, what happens if somebody has uh, is having a heart attack, they'll call 911. Um, in most states, the ambulance is able to do an EKG, so an electrical tracing of the heart um, electrical activity. And there are certain changes on that that can be definitive for heart attack. Often, if that's the case, then the ambulance might call ahead to the hospital that they're bringing the patient to and see this is an obvious heart attack. And from that, this, the hospital will often get people started on their way and if they have that advanced knowledge and it's obvious. So basically, as soon as the patient gets to the hospital, they'll probably um, be hooked up to the monitor um, so that they can be, it can be detected if they have any of those abnormal heart rhythms. Um, pr- probably the first thing they'll also do is get aspirin. Um, aspirin helps to decrease the blood's clotting ability and so that helps to prevent further clot from developing in the artery um, and get them as fast as possible to the cardiac cath lab. Um, So I'm an interventional cardiologist. This is one of the things that I do. If I'm called to the cath lab for somebody having a heart attack, I know that we may be able to detect where it's coming from on the EKG, but that may not be 100%. So we're taking a couple quick pictures to see where the problem is and uh, quickly advance our wires and balloons into that artery to disrupt. It's really what it's doing. It's disrupting the clot and opening that blockage to allow blood flow to continue through the blood vessel. Now, you talked about some of the the risk factors, and I think you mentioned that it could be someone who um, in your family had a risk factor for uh, heart disease or have heart attacks or or not. Um, let's but let's say that you have a grandparent or a parent who had a heart attack in the past. How should you go about addressing that? Should you see your doctor and mention that? Should you change any sort of lifestyle aspects? You know, if you if you are predisposed, what should you do about it? Sure. What I should actually clarify is that it matters significantly if the person had early heart disease. Okay. That is that is what's really thought to be a genetic abnormality, either in high cholesterol or in you know heart disease in particular. So if you have a family member who had a heart attack in their 40s or 50s, you are you are definitely at increased risk and should you know have a conversation with your doctor about maximizing uh, or minimizing all of your risks and max in optimizing your um, risk factor profile. So um, I always say that women have it better from this perspective because they see for, for fertility reasons or, you know, reproductive reasons, they see a doctor on a regular basis. But in many situations, we see a man after their first heart attack because the last time they saw a doctor was either a college or, or a military physical. 
And then they go through life and they don't do anything about their healthcare until, you know, they have a heart attack. And obviously there's still a lot we can do to help them and prevent other events, but we prefer primary prevention. So preventing the first event, not just having to do prevention for the, you know, the secondary event afterwards. So if there's a family history, um, particularly of a young family member having a heart attack, and, and especially if they died of it, then you should seek, you know, in your 30s or 40s, you know, have a visit with a primary care physician to just say, hey, let, let's check my cholesterol. Let's, you know, make sure my blood pressure is well controlled. Let me know what my risk factors are so I know how to prevent them. And sometimes the primary care physician might decide that it's worth an appointment with a cardiologist to have that same kind of conversation. And that's, you know, completely reasonable as well. Now, I think we've all heard or a lot of us have heard um, that there are benefits to taking aspirin ahead of time or even baby aspirin. Uh, is that actually worthwhile for someone who's at risk or um, has seen their, their doctor and may um, you know, fear the potential risk for a heart attack? Is that actually the, the truth there? Well, uh, I mean, you're referencing something that we did for many, many years. The most recent update on the guidelines for prevention have actually dropped aspirin from that preventative list. It's found to not actually, in somebody with no known heart disease, it's, it's not found to be beneficial. Um, however, if somebody does have a diagnosis of coronary artery disease, then that's a different story. Then they need to be on aspirin because that decreases the risk of them having um, a heart attack, knowing that they've got blockages in their arteries. So when it comes to prevention uh, of heart disease or heart attack, what sorts of lifestyle changes should someone go about you know, adopting? I know you mentioned obesity is one, certainly working out and exercising more. Are there any other lifestyle changes that someone should make if they are at a higher risk? So I mentioned avoiding smoking, of course. That's mm -hmm. probably the biggest uh, enemy number one <laughs> for, for a heart doctor. Um, so, smoke, so that's definitely a modifiable uh, lifestyle habit. With regards to diet, I'm, I tend to uh, err on the side of moderation because I recognize this is something that people need to do for their whole life. But the kinds of things, uh, foods, that, for example, that are high calorie and um, fried have uh, high saturated fats are the types of things that we should not think about as everyday types of food. So these are the things that you can have on your birthday or you have you know, a couple times a month but not your everyday um, type of food. Um, our American particularly diet is uh, really high in carbohydrates. Um, I think that um, our general understanding of what is a reasonable amount is not even present. Uh, so the, the best the example that I use of that is actually comes from an antique roadshow um, where the antique people are often uh, addressed by, you know, people looking at, at dishes, for example, and say, these are really nice dishes. You know, these are really nice lunch dishes. Do you have the dinner plates too? And, and when you really like, think about your grandparents dish set, for example, you know, their dinner plates are a lot smaller than what we think is dinner plates. And, you know, in our day and age now too. So that's probably one of the biggest things that we can address. You know, uh, when you go to an Italian restaurant, they put pasta on your plate, probably the correct serving size is half of that. <laughs> Um, and so ad addressing that more uh, accurately, so it's not really changing what you eat, but changing the amounts and eating a more appropriate amount for you is one way to help address uh, keeping your weight in the more ideal um, range and not um, having obesity. But because obesity really contributes to a lot of things, you know, uh, people that are obese are less likely to be as active. 
and so decreases their ability to, um, you know, exercise as much. So that's another way that it contributes. Obesity actually also contributes to, to development of diabetes. And so it's contributing to development of heart disease by sort of multi, <laughs> multiple modalities. And so if we could think about in terms of our lifestyle, what's the best thing that we can do is to be active and to moderate our diet so that we keep our body in a healthy weight range. So finally, Dr. Swayce, if our listeners have questions about heart disease, uh, concerns about the risk factors for heart attacks or uh, anything along those lines, where should they go for, for answers? So if you have questions and want to look it up online, I would say the American Heart Association is probably the number one site that I would recommend because uh, they have been doing this for many, many years and at least can give people um, the information. Uh, so many websites can be misleading and you don't necessarily know where they're coming from, but you can trust the American Heart Association. Um, but of course, Merck Manual also has some chapters on heart disease and heart attack. And so that's another place to get that information. Well, Dr. Swayze, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Certainly a great conversation, busting some of the myths on heart attacks versus cardiac arrest and talking a little bit about heart disease. Thanks for having me. This is definitely my passion to educate patients and help them know ahead of time what to expect, how to prevent problems, and if they do have them to seek medical attention. And as we close out, I'll let Dr. Swayze leave our listeners with the final word. As always, medical knowledge is power and pass it on. <laughs>